Blog Talk Radio. Joining us today on today's interview in, for Innovation in Myeloma. Um, after doing two successful interviews where over 1,500 of you listened in, we're thrilled at the level of interest we're seeing. We hope we can uncover new ideas together, and we welcome your suggestions about additional topics you may want to have covered. You can always email me by going to the M Patient website and clicking on the contact link, or you can send me an email at jenny at crowdcare.org to make a suggestion about future topics. I thought it would be helpful to give ourselves sort of a foundation for all future discussions. So what are clinical trials and beyond the basics of what they are and how to enroll, um, how can we use them to our advantage as patients? I fundamentally believe that patients can add to what's being done by great doctors and researchers. And I think we can help drive to a cure faster through knowledge, support, and participation, and maybe a little pushing from the patient side. (laughs) Um, I don't think we have the luxury of waiting around for a cure to appear, although that would be just terrific. Um, But I don't think it's going to happen that way with the current pace and the current process of how that works. Um, We have amazing people in the field who are all pushing towards the cure, including our guest for today, Dr. John Benson of the James Cancer Center at The Ohio State University. So hi, Dr. Benson. Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Jenny. It's great to be here. Thank you for the opportunity. Um, Just to give you a little background, Dr. Benson is a myeloma specialist at the James Comprehensive Cancer Center at The Ohio State University. His specialties include multiple myeloma, stem cell transplantation, and a research emphasis in natural killer NK cells and immunotherapy. Um, We're very excited that this will be part of a two-part series. Uh, We will interview Dr. Benson again on August 16th, to talk about his latest research in immunotherapy. And after I've spoken with him about what he's working on, I'll tell you that this is a show that you don't want to miss. Um, I'm going to let a patient of his brag about his excellent care on the next interview. But for this interview, I can tell you that Dr. Benson has been a principal investigator or a co-principal investigator in over 100 trials. And he was voted 2012 Professor of the Year at the Ohio State University, uh, the Ohio State University College of Medicine and he's a world-class researcher as well as a world-class individual. So he is a perfect choice for today's topic. So Dr. Benson, for today's interview, um, maybe you want to give us some background on clinical trials, why we have them, the purpose, and their design. Great. Thanks, Jenny. Thanks for the introduction, too. It was very nice of you. Um, I think this is a great topic as a starting point. for the series, just to talk a little bit about what a clinical trial is and where this fits in our um, in our quest to uh, cure myeloma. Um, just to start painting with some broad brushstrokes, a, a clinical trial is um, a means by which we evaluate potentially new promising treatments for cancer, for multiple myeloma. And um, I think to understand how this process works, we, we should step back a little bit and first talk about what uh, people call standard treatments or standard of care therapies. So um, most people um, with cancer, most people with multiple myeloma receive 
standard of care treatments, and, and that means that these are treatments that in 2013 are the best treatments that we have. And um, uh, if you step back and say, well, where did these standard treatments come from? How did we get to these treatments? Um, the answer is through clinical trials, that the, the standards of care that we have today, which um, candidly are better than last year and better than five years ago and certainly better than 10 years ago, these standards came to be because of clinical trials. Um, when, when we start to make distinctions between decisions about standard treatment, standards of care, versus participating in a clinical trial, one thing that we need to remember is that standard treatments um, of today uh, were the clinical trials from yesterday. So a clinical mm -hmm. trial is a very... Um, comprehensive, very complicated um, research study to evaluate uh, a new treatment for myeloma. Um, they're very tightly regulated. They're very tightly controlled. Um, they have multiple levels of, um, of uh, input from ethics boards and regulatory agencies and researchers and scientists, doctors and nurses. Um, Many of these include patients, actually, in their design and their conception and their execution. And clinical trials really are the formal way that we answer questions about new treatments, whether these are going to advance our, our quest, um, whether they're tolerable, whether they're safe, uh, and ultimately whether they'll replace our current standards of care. Okay. That's a great overview. I know that, um, well, we talked about this in the last interview, that only 5%, and I think your colleague, I've heard um, Dr. Craig Hoffmeister say that less than 3% in myeloma um, patients participate in clinical trials. So do you find that to be the case? And then we asked Dr. Olowski that same question, and he said if, if we were to have larger percentages of participation, that we could have faster outcomes. So do you agree with that? So that's that's absolutely true. So nationally, it, it's estimated that um, maybe 5 or 6% of adults who have cancer in the United States participate in a clinical trial of a new therapy at some point in their care. Um, that number is probably a little bit lower for multiple myeloma, and we know that um, there's other demographic um, issues and other patient populations where the numbers are even lower than that. Um, one of the best analogies I've ever heard about clinical trial participation is to compare how many adults with cancer participate in trials versus how many children with cancer participate in trials. And the reason that I think it's interesting is if you look at the differences in outcomes between pediatric cancers and adult cancers. So with children, um, if a child gets cancer, they will have somewhere like a 75 to 80% chance of being treated in a clinical trial um, compared to adults where it's That's certainly so high. much less than that. It's probably around 5% for adults, right? Right. Um, but then the interesting point comes when you compare the incredible progress that's been made in curing pediatric cancers to all the work we have left to do um, 
in finding cures for many adult cancers. And so this this isn't solely responsible, but it gets home that point that um, the um, the more people who join clinical trials, the faster the clinical trials can be done, the quicker we get to the answers that we all want. And do you think that's mostly because I, I would think as a parent that I would pick my child up and take them to a research facility that was doing probably the most innovative thing that I could find. And um, I think as adults, we might have a tendency to say, well, I have a job and my kids are here, my family's here, so maybe I won't travel if I don't need to. Um, do you think that's part of the participation issue or are there other participation issues why you see the big difference? Uh, it's a great question. We could spend an hour talking just about that. Um, I, I think that um, I think there's a lot of reasons why that's the case, and I think from a from a patient's perspective or, or from a parent's perspective, um, I, I think that part of what drives this is just like you said, the the altruistic motivation you have for your child to get the best care possible, and um, in in pediatrics. You know, there are um, very good dedicated pediatric centers uh, that all work together, that are all doing similar clinical trials. And, um, you know, our motivation as a mom or a dad is to get that kid to the best place and the best care. And ultimately that, for most kids, is a trial. Um, I think that same altruism that we have as adults gets translated differently exactly as you said when one of us gets cancer that our thoughts you know go to how is this going to affect my family how is this going to affect my job and how is this going to affect my ability to make ends meet and um, so the same intentions may lead to a different conclusion when it's us as opposed mm-hmm. to our children so I think that's a big part of it I, I don't think it explains the whole story but um I think the 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 reaction and the um the um feelings that drive those decisions ultimately end up in in a different place uh when it's us compared to our children. Okay. Yeah, I I agree. I would feel that as a parent also. Okay, um can we step back a little bit and maybe you can give us some kind of background on the different types of trials, because I've heard R01 trials or SPORE trials, and I don't necessarily understand the difference between the different types of trials there are. Mm -hmm. Sure. So let's talk about how a drug gets developed, and and Mm -hmm. that'll make sense with what kind of trials there are. So typically, the the process of, um, of developing a treatment for cancer uh, could be 15 years long or more. And um, it, w- when you just say, okay, how long does this take from an idea in somebody's mind in the laboratory to a commercial treatment that becomes a standard of care? That, I, w- I would say that's roughly 15 years. So before a drug ever gets tested in a clinical trial, um, there there could be five or ten or more years of the drug being tested in the laboratory. And so some of this is in vitro work in a petri dish cell culture work some of this is done um in animal models and um mm-hmm. uh some of the preclinical testing is with healthy human volunteers too sometimes um mm-hmm. but at any rate you know most treatments will have uh up to a decade of research before the drug ever gets into a human being um 
when uh, when a researcher gets to a point where they're ready to test a drug in a patient, they go to the FDA and file mm-hmm. um, uh, some paperwork uh, stating, you know, summarizing their background, summarizing their ideas, summarizing the data that they have, um, and they propose what's called a phase one trial. And so mm-hmm. this is the first time that the drug's ever going to be given to patients. Um, Generally speaking, we talk about three phases of clinical trials. And a phase one trial is that first step. So it's the first group of people um, who are going to get that medicine. Mm -hmm. Then a phase two trial um, follows that, and then a phase three trial comes next. And if everything works out right, then the drug goes up to the FDA to determine whether it can be approved for um for commercial use as a standard of care type of treatment. Mm-hmm. Even after that decision's made, there's something called a phase four trial, mm-hmm. uh, which is a longer study to collect more data to verify what's been found in the earlier work. But let's go through each one. Um, does that sound good? Through yeah, each sure. phase. Okay, so a phase one trial. So um, at this point, um, you know, a, a group of, of researchers and scientists, doctors, have all gotten together and they've they've done all of their basic science and all of their translational science, and they really think they've got something very promising, something that's going to uh, advance the care of patients with myeloma. So they get approval from the FDA and they start their phase one trial. Mm-hmm. The important thing to know, so a phase one trial, the first time you're giving it to a patient... Um, I think for me it's helpful to go back to the Hippocratic Oath, that mm-hmm. the first thing, um, you know, the the oath we take as physicians, the first thing is to do no harm. And a phase one trial, really, you can think about a phase one trial as um, a way to ask that question. Is this drug going to do more harm than good? Mm-hmm. So what happens in a phase one trial is um, the researchers are trying to figure out, is this drug safe? Is it tolerable? Does it have side effects that we weren't predicting? Is it too toxic? Um, the fundamental question in a phase one trial is, is this drug safe? And, and so this is include, really... Does it include dosage too? Like Absolutely. What, at yeah. what dosage is this toxic or not? Yeah, and that's that's really the key question in a phase one trial is, is can we give this drug safely? Mm-hmm. Um, typically, what they do is start with um, not an infinitesimally low dose, but they start with a very, very low dose of the medicine. And they have they have statistical methods. They have ways, very rigorous ways, to figure out a good starting dose. Um, and then they'll typically give that dose of the medicine to three people. And if they do okay with it, in, in terms of side effects and safety then they'll use a larger dose and they'll give that to three people. And if everybody does okay with that dose, they'll use an even larger dose on the next three people. And so this process will proceed until they give a dose where someone has a side effect, where someone has a significant um, toxicity. And at that point, they'll go back down to the next lower dose and give the drug to several more people to verify that that's a safe dose and that's the end of that trial. The phase one trial really is just to determine is this drug safe or not. And how long does that trial last typically? 
So these trials, so phase one trials generally are relatively small. They, they may have at most 20 or 30 patients. Oftentimes they may only have a dozen patients. Mm-hmm. And so it may take a year or so, um, a year, 18 months, um, to run a trial like that. Um, now, we, we'll, we'll come back to this in more detail, but um, certainly in a phase one trial, we're looking for any signal that the drug is working, that, that you know, that um, somebody's M protein is going down or they're going into remission or their pain's going away, or, you know, that the drug mm-hmm. is doing something positive. We're certainly absolutely looking for signs that um, the drug is working in a phase one. But really a phase one trial is designed for safety. Okay. Um, takes a year, year and a half maybe. Um, but the important conclusion of a phase one trial is to say, we found a safe dose of this medicine to give to patients with myeloma. Okay. Um, once that's done, once a phase one trial is completed, then the drug moves into phase two. And a phase two trial is a little bit bigger. It, it may have... Um, you know, 50, 60 patients. It may have up to 100 patients, I suppose. Depends on the design and, and and so forth. But a phase two trial, the big question in a phase two trial is, does it work? So okay. we know it's safe, and the phase two trial is, does it work? So the primary endpoint of a phase two trial um, can be different depending on the circumstances, but a phase two trial is going to look at response rates, or how long a remission lasts, or how far an M protein goes down, it's going to look for some kind of definitive evidence that the drug is working in people. Okay. Okay? Okay. And a phase two trial may take a little bit longer. It's a bigger study, and there's more people involved. So um, about how long do you think? So that's a good question. It, it depends on what their endpoint is. So... If the endpoint is how many people respond to this treatment, it could be two years um, uh, or less if you're just looking at the percentage of people who respond. Um, If they're looking at how long will your remission last, then the trial could take much longer, right? Because if it's Mm -hmm. a good drug and the average length of remission is three or four or five years, uh, it may be an awfully long trial (laughs) to run. Right, (laughs) right. So you have to be a little bit thoughtful in how you design your endpoints because um, if a drug really is providing significant benefit, you want to move it along. You don't want to just keep your trial running for the sake of the statistics. You want to get the drug out into patients who are going to benefit from this treatment. So we can we can dive deeper into that um, if you're interested because it, it's um, it's a really interesting time in myeloma how you define these endpoints. Um, so that you vet the drug, you know what you're dealing with. But on the other hand, if you've got something really promising, you want to get it out. You want to get it forward and make it available. So, well, sure. But so a phase how, two how trial, do you do that? Yeah. In in a phase two trial, so this is where myeloma is unique, I, I think. Um, and obviously, I'm biased because this is I take care of people with this disease every day. So, but myeloma is unique because we have the M protein. So in other words, we have a biomarker, we have a blood test that we can check, and we can know with some confidence right away whether a treatment's working or not, right? Because if mm-hmm. the 
M protein's going down, that means things are getting better. If the M protein's not going down, it means the drug's not doing what we hope it would do. Mm-hmm. So many phase two trials these days, the primary endpoint is response rate. In other words, how many people are going into remission from this treatment? And um, do they look at partial remission or complete remission or both? Or Yeah, so they, they stratify that. So they'll look at overall response rate, so how many people have any evidence of response. And then they'll divide that up and say, okay, how many people get a complete response? How many people get a partial response? How many people get a minor response? Um, and, and a lot of trials these days, they'll say, okay, how many people have stable disease, but their pain is better, their anemia is better, their function is better, their quality of life is better. Um, so they'll divide that down um, into categories after they look at the overall response rate. Okay. Um, but the, that, that's a really good point because in, in myeloma, um, you know, some of the treatments we have now, the, the progression-free survival or the length of remission, the duration of response could be very long. And so if you design your trial to look at that, you may have a six- or seven-year trial on your hands, and, and that's that's not fast enough. We, we need to make decisions and keep moving forward. So because of that, um, a lot of studies will look at response rate as their primary endpoint. Um, in other words, they'll say, okay, how many people are responding? And based on that number that we'll get in a year, we'll know whether to take this forward or not. But then as a secondary endpoint, they'll go ahead and follow people up long term. You know, even after enrollment is done and even after the studies um completed, they'll continue mm-hmm. to follow people and, and have data on length of remission eventually, but they won't allow that to hold up progress. Yeah, that, I I don't want progress held up as a patient. Right. I'd want to move especially it right along to phase good. three. Right. Yeah, especially for something good. I mean, there's a trial, and we can talk about examples if you want, but there's a trial um, that was reported at ASCO where, um, you know, the the median progression-free survival hasn't been reached yet, and it's coming up on three years now, and it's like... Mm-hmm. You know, clearly it's working. Let's, mm-hmm. <laughs> why do we have to wait? Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, a phase two trial is does it work? Um, okay. So phase one is is it safe? Phase two is does it work? And phase three is a randomized trial. So this is the first time in the process uh, where randomization happens. And, and what happens in a phase three trial is the most important question. And, and the question in a phase three trial is is this is this new drug better than the standard of care um so this is the study the phase 3 study is the trial where half of the people in the clinical trial get the new treatment and half of the people get the standard of care and then you see if the new treatment is better than the standard of care or not and it's the the, the ultimate decision right it's um mm-hmm. going head to head against the best that we have and saying is this new treatment really poised to push us forward? Um, or in the long run, does it turn out to be the same? And does it always happen half, or is it? can the percentages be split up? The percentages can be split up. So um, if you have a particularly promising drug that's really shown a lot of benefit, they may design their trial so that um, for every person that gets the standard therapy, two people get the new one. So it might mm-hmm. be a two-to-one randomization. Mm-hmm. The other thing that they do in these studies, so 
if a, if someone's participating and they get randomized to say the standard of care arm and during the trial they find out um that it's looking like the new treatment's better they have what's called a crossover so typically what happens in a phase 3 trial is you don't wait 2 or 3 years to find out the result the data board the data ethics board and safety board look at the data every month or every 3 months for any sign that one is one arm is doing better than the other and if they see any sign of that then they do a what's called a crossover and everybody gets the treatment that's working better right away mhm um but the phase 3 trial is really the um the litmus test for that drug whether it's going to replace our standard of care or not um and ultimately that decision is up to the FDA but the phase 3 trial is the one that um helps to inform that decision and then how um, many people are in a phase 3 trial and how long do they take so phase 3 trials in in multiple myeloma um they're they're typically hundreds of patients. So the big phase 3 trials that have been done recently have between 500 and 1000 patients enrolled. And half of the people are getting the standard treatment and half of the people are getting the new treatment. Um it it varies a little bit by how powerful your new treatment is. So if you mm-hmm. have a absolutely smashing sensational new treatment and you're predicting a big difference between the groups you may not want to put that many people in your study statistically you don't need that much power to show the difference and the sooner you get the answer the better on the other hand you can look at trials in breast cancer for example where literally 10,000 women might go on a breast cancer trial mm-hmm. um you know in part because the standard treatments are so good that the incremental benefit of new treatments is a little bit less um you need to have that many people to show the difference um mm-hmm. but the other reason is breast cancer is more common um lung right. cancer is more common and there's just more people around to be in the trials but generally in a myeloma phase 3 trial um i you know there's probably between 500 and 1000 people involved and the trial itself may take um you know the recent trials they take about 3 years or so something like that okay Okay, so if you add those those time frames up, you've got one year for the phase one and then two to five years for the phase two and then another three years for the phase three plus your laboratory time. Um, that, yeah, adds up to the time frame you were talking about. Um, how is it? How would it be possible to speed that standard process up? I guess I'm I, I guess it has to do with enrollment and if you're having patients enroll and it takes a long time to enroll, that part of it could be sped up. Are there any are there any other spots besides enrollment that could be sped up? Yeah, great. That's a great question. So um one of the easy answers is, you know, if what what did we say? Five percent of people participate. So say 10% of people participated, you could mm-hmm. conceivably cut that time in half, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if 20% of people participated, gosh, it would really speed the process up. Um, I, I think those are things you know we're trying to do at, at Ohio State. We have, the last I heard, something like 30% of our patients participate in trials here. So that really helps with the um, 
getting to answers faster. Um, I think that what's coming in the future is that um, um, our ability to um, design trials more thoughtfully. And what I mean, in other words, what I mean is that um, with the science that we have now and with the understanding of myeloma that we have now, um, we can be more deliberate and more um, creative in the way that we design new treatments um, so that when a drug does come into a phase one trial, we could even identify specific patients with myeloma who are most likely to benefit. Mm-hmm. Um, and conversely, we, we could identify people for whom that drug may not work as well. And, um, you know, ultimately get to a point where these designer drugs, these targeted therapies, um, are being run in trials that um, are designed for patients who are going to most likely benefit from that treatment. And that would speed things up a lot, too. Okay, so let's talk about that for a minute, different approaches to the standard process. Um, I was talking to a researcher. He just finished school, and he said he just made the observation that the current scientific research process hasn't really changed in about 50 years. And -hmm. I don't know if that's true or not, but um, it seems like with newer technologies or different approaches, we could really change the way that 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 standard process works. Uh, of course, we want safety, and we want the evaluation process to be run well, but um, I, I just think there's got to be a faster way. Now, you had mentioned to me a New York Times article by um, written by someone named Clifton Leaf who was talking about kind of what you're talking about, the reverse engineering, I guess, of a trial. So instead of taking one drug and then testing it with patients, taking the patients that are with that subtype of myeloma potentially and then testing multiple, even possibly already FDA-approved drugs against that subtype of myeloma. And I thought that was a fascinating approach. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think that um, that's a... um that's a great article, by the way, that was in the New York Times a week or so ago. Um, and and this is this is um, I, I hope that this is the future of um, of cancer drug development, cancer therapy, um, and myeloma clinical trials specifically. So, I think that the current paradigm that we have this this idea of phase one, phase two, phase three, um, this was developed. Um, you know, decades ago when cancer therapies were all very toxic. And so mm-hmm. um, if you think about a drug like melphalan, which is the drug we use for stem cell transplants, um, or, or a drug like cyclophosphamide or doxorubicin, um, you know, conventional chemotherapy drugs, the, these drugs work um, indiscriminately. In, in other mm-hmm. words, these cells or these, these drugs kill cells that are dividing. That's how they work. And cancer cells divide; they grow. Myeloma cells grow and proliferate, and so they present a target for these drugs. And they work kind of like a poison, right? They they mm-hmm. impair the cells' ability to grow and divide, and the cells die. And um, the problem with cytotoxic drugs, with cytotoxic chemotherapy drugs, is um, any cell that's growing and dividing is going to die as a result. So that's why people lose their hair. That's why people have diarrhea. Um, 
because your hair is always growing and the lining of your gut is always growing and mm-hmm. so while these cell while, while these drugs are busy killing cancer cells, they're also busy killing any dividing cell um and that's why um what they call the therapeutic window or or the um that's why the um side effects with conventional chemotherapies are so great um and anyway, from that idea. I think emanated this this paradigm of phase one, phase two, phase three. That you have to find a safe dose that will um, be tolerable, um, and then decide whether that drug works or not, um, mm-hmm. and then decide whether it's better than the standard of care. I, I think things are changing already. Um, I, I don't think things are about to change. I think the science has moved past that, and now mm-hmm. it's up to the um, it's up to the uh, um, the clinical trial process to catch up in the evolution. And the reason for that is is we know a whole lot more about cancer than we did 50 years ago or even 20 years or even 10 years ago. We know a lot more about um, the physiology of cancer cells and the metabolism of cancer cells and the genetics of cancer cells. And, and one of the most important breakthroughs in that um, in that process is that we can find targets for treatment. Um, so I, I, when I teach in the medical school, I tell the, the students that um, um, it's kind of like when your computer locks up. It's kind of like when your computer freezes. So um, you can get a baseball bat and you can hit your computer mm-hmm. to try to make it work again. And mm-hmm. that's, um, right, that's very <laughs> cathartic. Yeah, and it's very comforting and it makes you feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't fix the computer. And mm-hmm. and the reason is is because when you have when you get a blue screen and your computer crashes and your mouse doesn't work, it, it's not a problem with the hardware. It's a problem with the software. Mm-hmm. Um, and cancer, you can think about cancer as being a bug in the software program. That a mutated gene is kind of like having a bug in the software of that cell. And hitting it with a baseball bat is like giving cytotoxic chemotherapy. That you know if you can't fix it, just kill it. And um, in in the new era that that we've entered, we've clearly entered this era. Um, we we can have drugs that work like the Geek Squad. In other mm-hmm. words, we have drugs that can go in and find where the problem is in the cell, find where the bug is in the software, and fix it. Um, and you don't lose your hair, and you don't get diarrhea, because the drug only works on the cancer cell that has that bug in the software. Mm-hmm. So. With these new treatments, um, you know, the the treatment everybody talks about is is a drug called Gleevec. And so this is a drug for um, for a, a type of leukemia. So it's it's not a drug for myeloma, but it um, it helps to illustrate the principle that um, in in CML, in this form of leukemia, there's a very specific mutation that that causes the disease. And so uh, before Gleevec, people would get all kinds of chemotherapy that may or may not have worked, and people who were young enough and strong enough would get a donor stem cell transplant, and beyond that, there wasn't much you can do about it. Hmm. And Gleevec was designed um, basically to target that mutation that was driving the cancer. So in other words, Gleevec was like the fix for the bug in the software. Um, So is it in that monoclonal antibody group or no? No, Gleevec's actually a small molecule. Okay. Yeah, it's a small molecule. It's a kinase inhibitor. But 
um, the legendary result when when Gleevec was um, Gleevec got their approval from the FDA for their phase one trial, and the phase one trial of Gleevec, 53 out of the 54 patients got a complete remission. Wow! And um, that was like That's in 1999. Many of those people are still doing great today. So, but it, it illustrates the power of a targeted therapy. That if you really understand the genetics, if you really understand the cancer biology. You don't have to hit it with a baseball bat. You, you mm-hmm. can be very creative in your drug design. Um, and then to, to answer your original question, you can accelerate the drug discovery process and accelerate the speed towards a cure for the disease. So where does that change come from? If you were changing the process because you have these more targeted approaches, where does, at what point or step in that stage does it change? So one way that it's changed recently, not relatively recently, one of the ways that it's changed is um, through what they call the accelerated approval pathway. So um, the FDA back, I think, gosh, in the 1990s, um, created a new pathway to development um, for um, for new treatments for a variety of diseases. It, it actually came out of... Um, all of the research that was being done in HIV and AIDS mm-hmm. in the 1990s, where we had mm-hmm. this explosion of treatments for for HIV. Mm-hmm. And anyway, what the accelerated approval pathway does is that if if a drug has really promising results in a phase two trial, and it's clearly meeting an otherwise unmet medical need, so particularly if it's a rare disease or an uncommon condition the FDA will actually grant approval before the phase three trial is done and get the drug out as a standard of care even faster. And is that, and does so, myeloma fall into that category? Absolutely, without a doubt. So, in fact, the two drugs that have been most recently approved came through the accelerated approval pathway, mm-hmm. um, carfilzomib and pomalidomide. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, in the last... 10 years, um, the accelerated approval pathway has been dominated by cancer therapies, um, particularly for uncommon cancers like myeloma, um, because it's a, it, it represents, relatively speaking, it represents a, a very um, important area of unmet medical need, and um, it's a way to keep pace with the scientific discovery, too, that drugs like Belcade and Revlimid and um, more recently, pomalidomide and kyprolis, these drugs have gone through accelerated approval to get out um, to people faster based on phase two trial results. Mm-hmm. Um, they still do the phase three studies. They still do the phase four studies. But the the bottom line is people get good treatments faster this way. Yeah, um, but I think this is only... a better approach. Go ahead. No, yeah, it's a better approach. Yeah, I think this approach. is just the beginning. You know, in the end, um, in the end, people get uh, new treatments faster this way. Um, mm-hmm. uh, it, it doesn't obviate the need to ask that question. Still, you know, is this really better than what we have or not? We need, you know, you need to know that ultimately. But um, it, it's at least a way to get good treatments out to people faster. Mhm. That's great. Okay, so the different types of trials. Going back to that, and then so. You, you helped us understand the phases of the trials. Can you describe what those different types of trials are? And then I have some kind of more general questions about trials. 
So des- describe in more depth each each step, you mean? No, the like the R01 trials or a SPORE trial, what's the difference between those trials and do patients need to know about that? Oh, I'm sorry. Okay, so let's talk about who pays for trials. Mm-hmm. Um, so who pays for all this? Um, you know, there's there's estimates that um, it's it costs anywhere from eight hundred million to a billion dollars to go from an idea in somebody's head to a commercialized standard of care, and that's a lot of money. Um, mm-hmm. And and it's compounded by the fact that not all drugs that go through phase one and phase two will make it to phase three and make it to the market. Mm-hmm. Um, and in fact, most drugs don't. Most drugs. Um, fail at one step or another. Um, But at any rate, who pays for all this? So um, one way that these get paid for is through um, pharmaceutical companies and biotech companies. So they'll develop a drug in their own laboratories or with their own science, and then they'll act as the sponsor for the trials. They'll fund the trials themselves. there's two ways that that happens. One way is that a company designs the trial and then um, works in collaboration with uh, universities and researchers to run the trial. Or the other way it happens is someone at a university has an idea or, or somebody at a cancer center has an idea and goes to the company and it's called an investigator-initiated trial. Um, but in either way, uh, it's, the, um, it's the, the company that's funding the research. Um, and that's very common. That's not only common in myeloma, but it's common in all types of cancer and, and really in all types of health conditions, in cardiology and diabetes and uh, osteoporosis. And that, That's a very common way that, that trials get paid for. Mm-hmm. The other way that trials get funded is um, uh, through the National Cancer Institute. So um, the way this works is that... Um, Every year, Congress gets together and they decide on a budget, and um, Health and Human Services gets a budget, and the National Institutes of Health gets a budget, and the National Cancer Institute um, ends up with a budget. And then the National Cancer Institute has to decide how much money they're going to allocate to research at the NCI and how much money they're going to allocate to cancer research across the country. Mm-hmm. And then investigators at um, mainly at universities um, and big cancer centers can apply and compete for that money um, to fund their research. And so in these research programs, you can propose and run clinical trials that are actually paid for by NCI dollars. And there's a couple of ways that that can happen. There's different grant mechanisms um, that you can seek uh, to support clinical research and clinical trials. So traditionally, the grant mechanism that um, um, has been um, really the backbone of of cancer research and and medical research in general has been called an R01 grant. And an Mm -hmm. R01 grant is awarded to one person who is an independent investigator in a very specific field who's asking a very specific question. And a typical R01 grant may last between three and five years. It may be roughly a million dollars of funding total, um, and uh, maybe more than that, uh, maybe a little bit less. But you get the idea. It's a three- to Mm five-year grant. It's around, you know, $250,000 a year. 
to do your research. And so you can propose to do a clinical trial with that mechanism. Um, whether or not it's enough money to actually do a trial is debatable, but you could probably do a phase one trial that way. You may be able to do a small phase two trial that way. But I think that that model is going away um, for a couple of reasons. Um, mm -hmm. One reason is that um, there just isn't a lot of money, that the National Cancer Institute doesn't have a lot of money to fund cancer research. Or um, It depends if you see the glass as half full or half empty, but cancer research funding has absolutely not increased uh, in the last 10 years. If anything, it's stayed the same or it's gone down if you adjust for inflation. Yeah, I've read um, some currently. recent articles about that it, the, yeah, that mean, are saying uh, it's pretty level or going down. Yeah, I, I think you could say that it's level. level. Um, and um, But anyway, the fact is that if you apply for an R01, if you're you know a cancer researcher and you have a great idea and you want to do a trial and you apply for an R01, your, your chances of getting that award funded today are between 5 and 6%. Um, it's extraordinarily competitive to get an NCI grant these days. Um, mm -hmm. Traditionally, 20 years ago, your chances may have been 20 or 30 percent, and you could resubmit your grant three times, you could work on criticisms, you could answer questions, and chances are if you had a good idea, um, it would ultimately get funded. These days, that's not the case. These days, you're allowed to resubmit one time, and your chances of being funded are between 5 and 6 percent with that mechanism. So the um, the other general mechanism is to um, look at collaborative grants. And so mm -hmm. there's a couple of mechanisms where researchers can work together um, and do something even bigger, do something even greater um, synergistically um, by working together on related projects or working together on one project. So one mechanism is called um, a PO1 grant, or what they call a program project grant. And so this is where a group of researchers come together who have um, similar complementary interests and ideas, and they propose a programmatic grant where everybody's going to work together towards a common goal. Mm -hmm. So we have one of these here, for example, at Ohio State. We have one where five or six of us are together. We're working on immune treatments for um, blood cancers, and we're all doing our own thing, but the sum of the um, parts um, is actually greater than any of the individual parts, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and so in our PO1, I, I don't know how many trials we have in our PO1. I, mean, I have two trials in it myself, and but there's there's got to be at least a half a dozen trials in there. Um, it's still a five-year grant. Um, it's renewable, so... Um, we actually got ours renewed, so it's in its sixth or seventh year now, actually. But, um, you know, hundreds of patients have been in clinical trials on that mechanism. Um, we have um, a really, we, we can maybe talk about it in the next, it gets into the kind of research we do, but a really cool trial that um, just closed to accrual um, with some really neat results. Um, oh, yeah, I'm excited anyway. to talk about that next time. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm very I don't want to get through yet. <laughs> but um, in a in a program project grant, though, the the strength lies in the collaboration. That okay, let's bring these researchers together. Let's all just acknowledge publicly that one person is not going to cure cancer. That we need to work together. We need to be collaborative. We need to um, we need to be synergistic. Um, and a program project grant is a way to do that. And then 
The other big collaborative grant is called a SPORE grant, S-P-O-R-E, and that stands for a Specialized Program in Research Excellence. And that's really a very large grant where a number of literally world-class investigators comes together and says, we're going to create a specialized center where we just focus on this one disease and we're going to do trials and we're going to do basic research and translational stuff and the lab guys are going to talk to the clinic folks and vice versa. And a SPORE grant is really um, the the top tier grant from the NCI for collaboration in a, in a particular question or particular cancer. Hmm. So the pharmaceutical industry pays for trials, the NCI pays for trials, and then the other place where a lot of um, funding is coming from these days is philanthropy. Um, uh, groups like the American Cancer Society, groups like Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, um, these philanthropic groups um, will, um, it's the same idea. Investigators have to apply and they have to compete for the money and there's multiple steps of peer review and it's a very, it's, it's a very competitive process. Um, but the philanthropic groups, um, like Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, for example, um, have a very clear mission, a very clear agenda. We want to end blood cancers. Who's in? And mm-hmm. if you're in, um, this is a way uh, that you can get funding to do a trial that um, you know may not be on the radar of the NCI or may not be on the radar of a drug company. So um, these days, you know, this is a big um, source of benefit for uh, the research and ultimately for the patients too. So um, this is why we have Pelotonia at Ohio State. We have our own fundraiser here that's raised almost $50 million for cancer research. And um, we have... Trials Impressive. here that are paid for by Pelotonia, yeah. So, yeah, I, um, I think it's impressive. So, okay, I have a question. If if there's limited funding, and there's this wide kind of swath of different individuals who want to discover different things or research different things, who is deciding what gets funded and what doesn't? And how oh, how question. does that process, how does that process work? Oh, do you have a soapbox I could stand on? Um, <laughs> sure. You've got an open mic. Um, yeah, so generally speaking, um, <clears throat> generally speaking, the um, uh, who decides is um, a process of peer review. So in other words, you um, you come up with your application, you put your best data in there, you put your best ideas your best support for those ideas, and it's subjected to a peer review process. So uh, at the NCI, for example, there are uh, study review sections where there might be two dozen of the best researchers in that particular field who come together two or three times a year to review all the grants. Um, And they judge the grants on its individual merits, on the science, on the thinking, on the people who are doing it. Uh, And then they judge the relative merits and literally say which one is better than the other one. Um, so in, in the academic realm, in the NCI and at the philanthropic groups, um, it's a process of peer review of um, not only which grants um, uh, hold the most promise, in other words, which trials seem to have the most utilitarian benefit, how many people are going to benefit from this, dis- uh, this treatment and, how, and, and what degree of benefit are they going to get, um, but frankly, they're also reviewed on the likelihood of success. In other words, have these people done it before? Can we trust them with taxpayer dollars? Can we trust them with 
literally with money that was raised from car washes and lemonade stands, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, not to be dramatic, yeah. but... No, it um, is true. Can we trust them with the money to do what they they say they're going to do? Um, and that's a big part of the decision-making, too. In pharma, um, in, in, in pharmaceutical uh, trials, um, the decisions are often made internally by the physicians and the scientists who work for that company. Mm-hmm. Um, 99.9% of the time, though, they're made with input from advisory boards where they'll they'll call up, um, you know, the, the researchers who do this for a living and say, okay, everybody meet in Chicago because we're going to design a trial together. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, everybody meet in New York and we're going to sit down and close the door and we're not leaving until we have a trial that's um, not only promising, but also a trial that's going to give us an answer to our question. Um so, um, gener- you know, they, they have some general similarities. It's, it's get um, in a room, you know, the best and brightest people we can find and sit down and, and chart the course, chart the direction together. Um, well, let me, that, ask a, let me ask a follow-up question for some of that, because mm-hmm. I know that um, the outcome of a lot of clinical trials is publishing, and so I think it's a challenge to, if you're measured on how many papers you're publishing in the industry, and that helps feed into the grants that you're potentially getting, then peer review is a pretty big challenge. Because mm-hmm. sometimes, I don't know if it's, it, I'm outside the industry, so I don't know. But I don't know if all the best ideas are are funded or how that all works. Maybe you can to that as someone inside the industry. Yeah, I think so you're you're spot on, Jenny. Um I, I think that um it it's helpful for me. Um you know, I, I just did a talk um with with some patients here in our community not long ago and I told them pretend like you're in charge of a pharma company or pretend like you run the NCI. Um who would you fund? What what projects would you fund? Um, and before you answer, think about what the alternatives are. Okay, so one alternative is um, you could um, you could take some risks. So what I mean by that is um, if somebody has a completely outside-the-box new idea, new mechanism, new target, new therapy, totally new approach, um, you know, not a lot of preliminary data, not a lot of... Um, publications, not a lot of experience, but the risk-reward of this is so great. I mean, it might be a cure, it might be a long-term, you know, durable remission kind of drug, um, but there's no track record. There's absolutely Mm -hmm. no guarantee it's going to work. It's what I would call very high-risk, very high-reward type of study. The question is, would you fund that, or would you fund Mm -hmm. um, the other option, which is a new treatment that is um, something that's coming out of a line of research that's a next-generation drug of a class we already have. Um, it's something we know, some, you know, we know something about the safety of this drug class. We know something about the tolerability. We know something about the efficacy. And this new drug is um, in the same class, but it's going to provide some incremental benefit. So the risk-reward is much less. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I tell the students here, it's, you know, if you um, if you're playing a baseball game, it would be the difference between a base hit and a home run. 
and you can't fund mm-hmm. both. But what you have to realize is that people who hit home runs oftentimes are people who strike out a lot too. Mm-hmm. So which one would you fund? You can't fund both. Um, and before you answer, the second question is who are you going to fund? Are you going to fund um, you know, a, a younger investigator who doesn't have a track record or, or are you going to fund someone who's been doing it for 30 years who's gotten results, um, you know, where where is the money going to go? So, um, you know, and then you can you can overlap that with, again, going back to sort of utilitarian ideas. How can I do the most benefit for the greatest number of people? Um, but in so my I, view, those, those are the... Those are the kind of decisions people face when they're when they're cutting that pie up and saying, "Okay, we have limited amount of money, limited amount of resources. Um, where are we going to invest?" And and oftentimes the investment goes to the incremental benefit. Yeah, let's talk about that for a minute because I would think that um, you would have a pocket, and I don't know what percentage is. Maybe you know the percentage that invests in the incremental innovation or. We we have a hypothesis that this is going to work, and so we're going to fund that, and it's going to be incrementally better, and patients are going to live a few months longer, and that's great. I mean, all innovation is good, right? And then mm-hmm. you have this high-risk pocket of people who are saying, well, I'm going to take this this already FDA-approved drug and see if it works for myeloma, or I'm going to um, come up with this very new radical therapy that might work for myeloma. So where... It, when you look at the funding, who's doing the funding? Who falls into those different categories? So I, I think this is where the um, the philanthropic groups come in. Um, I, I think that um, the, just just my opinion, my two cents. But the really disruptive therapies, the ones that um, have the potential to change practice substantially, significantly, those projects are funded from philanthropic groups, Um, therapies that will provide an incremental benefit. And importantly, I don't want to minimize that. I mean, there are amazing people in in pharma. There's amazing people at the NCI. I have nothing but respect for um, people who dedicate their lives that way. Um, And they have provided us drugs like Revlimid and Velcade and, Mm -hmm. I mean, that have changed the landscape, right? Right. But the truly, you know, the disruptive therapies, I mean, Gleevec's a perfect example. We talked about it a few minutes ago. The, the mm-hmm. original work with Gleevec was funded by the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And it was, it was, mm-hmm. <laughs> it was something that, um, yeah, it took a philanthropic group to take a risk like that, um, just as an example, you know. So um, that that's my general sense of, of where... Um, funding comes from these. But in a lot of ways, it's like building a baseball team, right? You don't want a team of people who hit base hits and no one who can hit a home run. You want kind of a mix of all of that in your team. And I think, you know, from a bird's eye view, when you look at the whole forest, I think that's what we're trying to shoot for is um, people who are certainly working on incremental benefits that can we, we can bring to patients quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, you want a core group of people who are willing to think outside the box and really think fundamentally different than than the rest. And ultimately, they're the ones who are going to propose, um, you know, the innovative kind of things that um, um, may may lead to very sudden changes in, in treatment. So part of the problem, um, part of the problem is 
this, that um, part of the problem is that um, we know what we know, but we don't know what we don't know. Mm-hmm. And so um, if you ever, or if your listeners, if anybody ever hears someone stand up, a politician or a researcher, or if you hear someone stand up and say, well, we're going to have a cure in 2016, and that's that's um, dishonest. That's disingenuous. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't, you know, I, I can tell you honestly, I can tell you that we're further along today than yesterday. I can tell you we're a lot further along than we were five or ten years ago. Mm-hmm. Um but I, I can't tell you where we'll be tomorrow until we get there. Um, I think that ultimately, um, it's I, I I don't mean to keep flipping into analogies, but I, I keep I I think ultimately it's like running a marathon without a map. You, you mm-hmm. kind of know it's 26.2 miles, and um, we know what the finish line looks like. We want to cure myeloma. Um, none of that's in doubt. But what's in doubt is, do you turn left or right at the next intersection? Or is there a hill coming up? Or, you know, did we go down a wrong street here? Um, and and really, the only thing you can control um, is whether you're going to run or not. Mm-hmm. You can either decide to run or you can decide to give up. And And beyond that, the only thing you can control is how fast you run, and that has to do with the funding. And then the other thing you can control is how many people are in the race, and that's how many people participate in clinical trials. And those are the variables that will get you to the finish line faster. I I agree. And I think there might, might be one more variable that I don't know if it's used in medicine or how it's used in medicine, but... My husband's an investor, and so we've we've been on the end uh, and an entrepreneur. So, in the environment that he's in, they might have an eighty percent failure rate in startups. It's kind of the general number. Um, mm-hmm. And what he's trying trying to do is how do we how do we focus down and and eliminate most of the risk so we can fail early and fail fast. Mm-hmm. Some of it is in having the accountability. So. In science, I notice that sometimes when we've done maybe angel investing or just kind of philanthropic investing, and then there's no accountability on the other side, it's there's a high high predictability that that money will not be used wisely. Mm-hmm. So when it comes to trials, how does the accountability piece work? Either either this study was successful, or and I'm going to shut down maybe a phase two, or just the whole the whole process how who's who's accountable and to whom so good question so one of the new phase 2 trial designs is called a no it's called a go no go design and so what this trial design does statistically is that it attempts to answer the efficacy question very early in the treatment and so typically what they'll do is um they'll write their trial design to enroll between 9 and 12 patients. And if they don't see X number of responses in that early cohort, they shut the trial down. Mm-hmm. And they don't they don't continue. And then they take that money somewhere else. Um, if they do a trial and they enroll 9 to 12 patients and half of the patients respond, then they expand it to 40 and they go on. So it's called a... a two-stage design or a go-no-go trial. So you're you're leveraging um, this this really important decision based on your first 
you know, experience in the first group of people. Um, so that's helped um, to weed out um, the, the treatments that aren't that promising right away. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, though, the question, it just comes back again and again for me is, is, well, why did these people respond and these people didn't? You know, couldn't we have predicted something by their disease biology or by their um, the person's metabolism or by their immune system or by the nature of their disease? Why couldn't we have predicted this a priori? Um, mm-hmm. In other words, why couldn't we have written a study to maximize our response rate out of the gates rather than have to rely on a no go you know go no go design where you know you just gave the drug to five or six people and they didn't benefit from it because um, mm-hmm. I think we're smarter than that now we're at a point where we can design trials better in terms of eligibility and circumvent this whole problem um, but going back to accountability so um, you know I guess. I don't know that I can speak to pharma accountability. They they have the same regulatory um, accountability that we do, both on an ethics side and on a um, legal and regulatory side for reporting and um, following patients and ensuring welfare and so forth. We haven't really talked at all about that, how mm-hmm. patients are protect, protected in trials. That's huge. But um, yeah, with NCI grants... Yeah, there's there's multiple steps of accountability though with with philanthropic dollars and NCI grants. Um, but anyway, the same thing holds true with patient welfare that um, there's there's multiple levels of protections built in for patients on trials that um, um, deal with um, you know foundational concepts about autonomy and beneficence and acting in a in a fiduciary manner in a responsible manner for the patient. Um, and that's all built in with the um, review boards and the ethics boards and the data safety monitoring boards. And um, trials are audited routinely by the FDA, by the sponsor, by the IRB, by internal audits. Um, so um, from, a, from a patient welfare standpoint, that's all um, taken care of to every degree possible. So, so I think that the... Reasons a patient may not want to be particip- may not want to participate or haven't participated so far. Oh, um, the American Cancer Society listed four reasons, and one was just lack of awareness that they didn't know the trial was happening. Mm-hmm. So, I think that might be on the clinician side to educate their patients about what trials they're running and the potentials. Yeah, that's entirely in our lap. That's nothing to do with patients. If a patient is not aware of a trial, that's entirely our fault as their as their caregivers, as their care providers. Um, part of the challenge, um, part of the problem with clinical trials is they take a lot of time. That mm-hmm. you know, if someone's in a busy practice and they only have 15 minutes to spend with the patient, um, it, it, there may not be time to talk about a trial. Um, you know, when at, at my clinic, I mean, all I do is take care of people with myeloma. So, um, yeah, we're busy, and yeah, it's um, we're always behind. <laughs> mm-hmm. Part of that is because um, you know we think this is important. That if it takes a half hour or forty-five minutes to talk about a trial and what it is and what it's like and whether it's right for you or not, then it's worth that time investment. It's it's a it's a really important thing. So. 
I think um, this idea that patients aren't aware, that's all on us. That's all on the on the physicians. Well, I know just for me, I it would have been fine for me had somebody talked to me at the clinic about it, not necessarily my myeloma specialist because maybe I can ask follow-up questions for him. But if somebody says, this is the trial we're running as my physician's assistant or something, and I just want to let you know about it, give you a little more information about it, this is what it's supposed to do, and and kind of do the preparatory work, I think that that's an easy thing to do because you're spending mm-hmm. plenty of time in the clinic. <laughs> let me say that, yeah. that, that there's enough wait time to review something like that when you're in the clinic. Yeah, I agree. We're really lucky here with um, the nurse practitioners we have and the um, the whole team, the, even the you know the clinic nurses and the PCAs and everybody's on board with this too. That um, trials are important. So, um, but but I think you're right that the lack of awareness then, um, if it's not something that's brought up early on in somebody's care, then it kind of fosters sort of a suspicion or. Not suspicion, but kind of, well, why are you talking about it now? Why didn't we talk about this two years ago if they're so important mm-hmm. kind of thing? Um, and I think there's a lot of mystery around it. And um, you always hear, oh, you know, I didn't want mom to be a guinea pig, so I told her not to do the trial. And well, what does that mean? You know, what does mm-hmm. that really mean? To I can tell you I've been, um, you know, going back to 1992 and getting to doctoral degrees. I've never experimented on a guinea pig, ever. <laughs> I don't know where that analogy even came from. Well, you um, talked about that at the beginning of our conversation where you were saying it's you're, it's either the standard of care or something better. So I think at least in myeloma that you don't really need to worry about that as a patient is is feeling like that because you're either going to get the standard of care, which is not a cure at this point, so we do need to do something differently if we're going to move things forward. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um, that That's a concern, too, that people say, well, you know, if I go in this trial, I might get a placebo. Well, um, so um, let's talk about that for a minute. So mm-hmm. sure. um, I think part of that is, uh, a big part of that is on us, too, as the physicians, that we're not explaining trials properly and we're not explaining you know what happens in a trial that um now now we do do trials that have placebos in fact um mm-hmm. we recently Ohio State led the accrual on on the biggest trial in North America for post transplant maintenance um so this was a study that was published in the New England Journal of Medicine a couple of years back that showed if you take Revlimid after a transplant it makes your remission last longer and half of the people in that study got a placebo, and half of them got revelment. So why could we do that? Why is that ethical? Well, the reason is is because at the time, the standard of care was do nothing. The standard of care was observation. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you observe half the people and the other half the people got a pill, then everyone would know who was on revelment and who wasn't. So the people who got... Um, the standard of care, which was observation, took a placebo, and that way nobody knew who was on Revlimid and who was on placebo. Hmm. So in a trial like that, now that's that's really rare, but it's an example of when we would use a placebo, and the only time we would do that is if the standard of care was do nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, and there aren't many times in myeloma where the standard of care is do nothing. So, right. Um, 
you know, in most trials, the standard of care is the best we got. And in fact, there are some there are some phase three trials where the new drug is randomized against investigator's choice, which I think is a great trial design. Um, so in other words, you have your drug, your very promising drug, and you randomize it against whatever the doctor wants to give that patient. You think you got something better? Then give it. <laughs> that's, mm-hmm. that's a trial design, mm-hmm. you know, because then you say, okay, is this better than everything everyone else has ever come up with? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, I'd like to see more phase three trials done that way, actually. Yeah, it sounds. I I think I think there is a need to explore new opportunities in how the trials are structured or how we choose them or can we work backwards like you were saying and and do things more specifically. I think part of it is too changing the perception of risk in the medical field because you know, I used the example earlier of entrepreneurship. Well it's perfectly acceptable for eighty percent of startups to fail. We kind of assume that, that there's you know, these are new ideas, they're radical ideas, they may or may not work. We're trying to narrow it down you know, my husband's trying to narrow it down to a process, so it it's not so much risk taking. But um the perception that this is crazy, I, I think medical professionals end up taking a reputation hit when you could beat up the idea and not the individual in innovation when it comes to medical innovation. And sometimes these visionaries will see this and start working on a protocol and everyone else will say, Oh, he they're crazy and then 10 years after all the data is out, oh, well, okay, they weren't so crazy. <laughs> Maybe they so, weren't crazy, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know how to change that that perception. Oh, Maybe you can take a subset of the innovation and drive it through a different structure so you kind of de-risk it as much as possible. But I think there is a lot of reservation that comes with people who are in, incredibly smart and they're in the field, and they have all the piece, the puzzle pieces that they can put together, and they're in this trap, sort of in this environment sometimes that is not really. It's very risk averse. Mm-hmm. So, so I, I think, um, I think two things with that. I think one is that. Um, so we're again, we're really lucky at my institution because we have chemo, you know, dedicated chemotherapy pharmacists who will counsel patients, and we have our nurse practitioners and. We have this team philosophy, and and we really try to engage folks as partners in their disease. We want people to learn. We want people to be involved, and and really help you know make decisions and and figure out what's best um, for you. Because what's best for you might not be what's best for the person in the next room. But having said all that, I think um, the attraction of standard therapy is that it's standard therapy. So. It must be less risky. It must be less toxic. It must be safer. And that's that's not always true. I, I think mm-hmm. that a lot of us kind of take for granted that because it's a standard, it's safe. And then we we kind of gloss over, well, there is a risk of blood clots. There is a risk of infection. Yeah. There is a risk of neuropathy. And um, I think, you know, if you read the informed consent for a trial, there's five pages of, you know, risks in there. Um, oftentimes people don't get an informed consent for standard treatment and they don't they're not fully aware of all the risks of a standard treatment. So it's not apples and oranges. Standard treatments are you know, can be can have dangers and so I think that's part of the problem is that um maybe doctors just don't want to talk to patients about the the possible bad side effects. Mm-hmm. Um 
that inevitably come up in a clinical trial discussion. You have to disclose everything in a trial where it might just be easier and quicker to do a standard treatment and not have to worry about, you know, full disclosure maybe. Um, and then you kind of alluded to this earlier, the publication bias, that um, this idea that if a trial doesn't succeed, it's not going to get published and, you know, people's careers are on the line and their reputations mm-hmm. are on the line and so forth. Well, you know, I've published, um, I don't know how many negative trials, but what we do with each one is say, okay, well, why didn't this work the way we thought? You know, why didn't why didn't it work like it did in the mice and why didn't it work like it did in the test tube? And we still learn from that. You know, we did a study a few years ago that um, um, we gave a treatment and it didn't, it, I mean, it worked, but it didn't work as well as we wanted. And we went back and said, well, why? Why didn't this work? And it turned out that all these patients that we had enrolled on the study had a mutation in their um, immune system uh, that wouldn't bind the drug. And oh, no. We didn't even know it existed. We didn't even know. I mean, no. how would you? You don't know what you don't know. Right. Um, but it wasn't until we said, well, dang it, why didn't, how, what? You know, how come it didn't? Mm-hmm. And went back and did those correlates and, um, and it, you know, it got published in a good journal, but that's not the point. The point is we learned something um, to help us take care of the next patient. And uh, so even a negative trial can be beneficial. Um, mm-hmm. And, um you know, we we talked about this before the phone call started. That um, there there are even there are even studies that have been done and research that has been done that um, people may be actually be more likely to benefit in a trial than if they get standard treatment. Actually, mm-hmm. hmm. um, and whether it's you know whether it's because they're getting a new and better treatment or whether it's because they're getting better care is debatable, but for sure, in a trial, you're going to have more people looking at your numbers, more people assessing your quality of life, more people looking at your blood tests, more people looking at your um, your total picture um, because it's in a trial, because there's right. a data safety monitoring board, because there's an ethics board, because there's a research nurse, because there's a statistician, because there's a dedicated pharmacist, because there's someone who's going to call on Wednesday morning and just check in and see how you're doing and you have all these people behind you in the trial that you don't have with standard therapy. So, mm-hmm. Okay, well, I guess my, my last question, then I'm going to open it up for caller questions, is how can patients best help speed up this, speed up the discovery process for a cure through clinical trial participation? So I, I think the, the best answer is get involved and ask questions and um, be a partner in your care. Take the reins and take charge. Um, I tell all my patients this um, myself. We're, we're a tertiary referral center, and I, I've told many of my patients, hey, you know what, get a second opinion. Um, mm-hmm. it's, you know, take a week or two and get a second opinion. There's, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I think taking charge and getting involved is number one. And then step two is learn learn about trials. Find out what's out there. There's all kinds of resources online. Um, there's all kinds of resources from um, the various philanthropic groups. Uh, and then talk to, you know, when, when you're talking with your doctor, talk about trials. And if they propose a trial for you, ask why. Why is this trial good for me? Why is this trial good right now for me? Mm-hmm. Um, and then my favorite question, a patient of mine asked me this once, and it was such a wonderful question. And, and um, I would say, how are the results of this trial going to change your practice? 
That's a great question to ask, you know, to to it really is, dive deep in. That's a great question. Because <laughs> not all trials are created equal. You know, we we talked about this before too. That um, um, trials are are um, evaluating different drugs and different approaches and different therapies and different options. And I think a great question to ask is, you know. I, hey, you know what? I'm really interested in being this trial. Just one question for you. How is this going to change your management? How is this going to change your care? I think mm-hmm. that's a phenomenal question to ask. And if you get a good answer, I would think about being in it. Mm-hmm. That's a great it's a great suggestion and it's a great question. It really is. Okay, I would I would like to open it up for questions about clinical trials. So if any of our callers have questions, you can press 1 on your keypad that are listening. And then if you do have a question, you can turn off the sound on your computer so it doesn't we don't get the feedback. Um, okay, I have uh, one caller's question. Okay, go ahead with your question. Are you there? Oh, sorry. Okay, I have a caller open for a question. Can can you hear me right now? Yep. Yep, I can hear you. Okay. Dr. Benson, first I just want to thank you for your time today. It's been it's been really good. Um I have a question uh regarding your processes and, and the resources that you have uh to you. What what if you could wave a magic wand and take down one hurdle in your work, what what would it be? What what would uh kind of make you be able to do your work faster and, and get to a cure more quickly? Oh wow, that's a great question. Thank you. Um if I could take down one barrier. Um I tell you so I would not take down the regulatory barriers. I, I think that um the um the process of starting up a trial, it, it could take you easily six months to open a trial because of all the the regulatory reviews and um um review boards and ethics boards and so forth and I wouldn't change any of that. I think that's that kind of rigor is is crucial. Mm-hmm. Um I think that one barrier is being addressed now. Um certainly in our state in Ohio and I know there's there's probably 25 or 30 states that have adopted this, but um there had been a, a financial barrier to um trial participation in that a lot of insurance companies would not cover clinical trial participation for patients. Mm-hmm. And now many states have adopted laws to um, prevent that. And so this, this legislation basically says that if somebody has cancer and they want to be in a clinical trial, um, the insurance companies must let them participate. And the rationale is that anything that's considered to be investigational is covered by the sponsor. Um, all that's asked in these um, in in these laws is that the insurance companies pay for the standards of care that patients would get anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, that was a huge. I can't tell you how huge that was um, when that barrier fell, um, because a lot of patients who um, wanted to be in a trial, who wanted to make a difference for themselves and and for the next patient in the waiting room, um, couldn't do it because their insurance company wouldn't allow it. Um, and and so we're we're breaking that barrier down now nationally. Um I I think that um you know, in addition to um having more people participate, 
um, I, I think we're making a little bit of progress in that. I think we're making a little bit of progress in um, designing more rational trials as well in terms of mm-hmm. matching patients with treatments that are most likely to work. Um, I, I think the only other thing I would do is potentially shift more funding into the really paradigm-shifting types of um, approaches. So, mm-hmm. in other words, I, I think... More, more big swings? Yeah, I'm I'm in agreement. I I think that um these these treatments that come out that provide incremental benefit, that's a great backbone. I think it's a great um um a great place to um to focus resources, but I I think that um you know, not only in in myeloma, but in cancer and in medicine in general, um when you look at the really the, the therapies that have changed practice, the therapies that have cured diseases, they they kind of came out of the blue. It's not like they were scheduled or they were predictable. It was people who were answering really hard questions, who were spending their lives on one really fundamentally difficult question. And how they got there was just hard work. How they got there was doing the experiments and trying and failing and going back to it and trying again. And um, mm-hmm. it, it can be a little demoralizing, right? Because um, you could go months or you could go years without that breakthrough. But when it happens everything changes overnight from then on. I mean, Gleevec's the perfect example. Uh, and there's others, too, we could talk about. But mm-hmm. um, it's hard for, you know, if I was um, if I was an investor and I had money to invest, you know, would I want to take that risk? And um, I don't know. I, I think it, it makes it hard. But um, Yeah, I think I, I also have a little bit of investment uh, experience, like Jenny's husband, and uh, I would... I think you need to get a lot of those swings at one time so you can show some success because one one big swing is likely going to fail. So just from a pure uh, political standpoint of getting the support you need, trying to do more than one at a time could be helpful, I think. So. I do too. I think um, for whatever reason, I think those those kind of ideas are the first ones to suffer when when you're in an environment of limited means and limited resources. Um, you, you want to be utilitarian, and and so that means ultimately looking at incremental benefit, and that's that's great. I'm not trying to downplay that at all, um, but I think it's not great to sacrifice funding that goes into these really transformative ideas, where 99 out of 100 of them might not pan out, but the one that does is going to change things literally overnight. And um, you know, I think we can't we can't forget about that. Yeah, I well, thank you for for your work on this, Dr. Benson. I really appreciate you taking my question. Uh, absolutely. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Okay, um, second question. Okay, go ahead. Hi, Dr. Benson. This is Paul. Um, first Hi, Paul. of all, I want, to thank, hey, I want to thank you for a very thorough coverage of the subject matter. Um, you, you started eating up all my questions as I was listening in. So, <laughs> um, so, so I'd like to follow up on the last caller. As you're talking about, you know, funding the the disruptions versus the incremental, and you mentioned that, you know, you're looking at the whole forest, and sometimes you, it's hard to get you get lost at that that perspective. But taking the forest analogy, if you don't plant the seeds, you're not going to get the trees. And and as a spouse, as a caregiver, it, it's frustrating that to listen as you're talking about where most of the invent, investment 
is going into this incremental um, innovation, this incremental cures, and or it's actually not moving towards a cure. It's just incremental, but it's not driving a cure. And there's very limited dollars, as, you, as, we, as I've understood, focused on this, you know, things are driving cures, this disruptive area. So as patients and caregivers, what can we do to, to change that paradigm? And and I, I acknowledge that some of these, you know, I think we can donate to organizations that are that are driving. But is there something else we could do that's even more radical? I, maybe that's not a fair question for you. So, Jenny, maybe you could help answer this, but is there something we could do that's more radical to just drive dollars to, to areas that have a higher probability of failure, but have a, if that works, it could generate the cure. And, and in, the, in, the, in the funding continuum, you want to do later stage investments and safer stuff, but, but if you don't plant the seeds, you don't get the trees, and so you have to be able to put some money at that early stage and, and take that risk. But, that's, but the people that are willing to take the risk are people like us that are like there there are no cures out there, so we're willing to make those investments. But but I don't see the mechanisms out there to do that. Or maybe I'm just missing it. What 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 else is out there that we could invest into today to help drive that, to help solve get these younger doctors that have have are thinking a little bit differently in into the research mix. Yeah, that's so you hit it on the head. I don't know if I could have said things better myself. Um, I think that um, what can you do? You can you can write to your um, representatives. You can write to your governmental representatives with these kind of ideas. You can write to the NCI. You can get involved in you know these are just kind of low-hanging. You can get involved in your local Leukemia and Lymphoma Society chapter, American Cancer Society chapter. Um, those are all things that, that you can do. I, I think, um, you know, the program we have here at, at Ohio State, Pelotonia, is a, um, it's a cycling event that happens once a year. And the vast majority of that money actually goes into these kind of, uh, of seed grants. It, it's, you know, literally like a $100,000 grant it's two years of protected time, um, but the caveat is it's for um, a transformative idea. In other words, it's it's um, risk capital, right? It's money that's going to be invested into something that's completely out of the box, that's that's um, ha has no preliminary data at all. Um, uh, but it gives the the scientists here two years and a um, hundred thousand dollars to really ask the first questions of whether this is something that should be pursued or not. Um, I know other cancer centers are starting the same idea. Dana-Farber has um, Pan Mass Challenge. I know the Hutch out in Seattle is starting a similar program, but this idea to preferentially fund um, really transformative thinking and, and full, with the full realization that the failure rate for these is going to be very high. Um, but I'm reminded of a study, so this was um, published, I think, in BMJ, in the British Medical Journal, probably 10 years ago now, but it was it was a really interesting study, and it's it's kind of hard to to express, but bear with me. What, what these researchers did, they were actually social scientists, and they went out um, um, in the streets of uh, London, and um, and uh, they posed this question to, to folks out in in uh, the public, they said, um, 
you know, imagine for a minute that you had an incurable cancer. Um, there, there was no treatment options left, and you were really in dire straits. And um, you had two treatment options. You know, the doctors said that um, the one one thing we could do is is we could give you supportive care and pain medicines and keep you um, from suffering. And if we choose that route, um, you know, there's a 90% chance that um, you won't have any um, you won't have any suffering, but um, you probably won't live, um, you know, more than three to six months. And the other option is we could admit you to the hospital and we could do this experimental treatment. Um, and the chances of having side effects and toxicities and significant problems with this treatment are very high. They're like 70 or 80% chance you'll have really significant problems um, and that, in fact, you might actually die from this treatment. And so the question was, what would the chances of success have to be for you to pick that treatment over supportive care? And so does that make sense? So so when the when the Okay, so when the when the researchers went out into the general population and asked this question, most of the people answered that the chances of success would have to be very high for that treatment to work for them to pick it. And so I don't remember what it was, but it was like 75% that it had to be a 75% chance of of the treatment working um for them to pick that over supportive care. So the researchers thanked them and then they went to um to oncology nurses and they asked them the same question. And the oncology nurses said, um, you know, something, the, the chances of that treatment working had to be, um, you know, something similar. Um, or maybe it was even higher, as I remember. It might have been like 80% chance of it working for them to pick it. And so then they asked a group of oncologists, and their 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 answer was the same. It was, you know, 60 or 70% chance of it working. Um, so then the researchers did something very interesting. They actually went to patients who were in that boat. So so they sought out patients who had terminal cancers who had progressed to a point where they had no standard treatment options left, and they posed them that question. And they, they so they asked these people, what are the chances of this treatment working? What would the chances have to be for you to accept that treatment? And you know what the patient's answer was? Hmm. One percent. Oh, really? Wow. It was one percent. And and I think that study. I I make our medical students here read that study because it's so illustrative of what people are dealing with in real life. That we we can sit here and talk for hours about how trials are done and the statistics mm-hmm. and the funding and the. Um, but I think that when I read that study, it really hit home. My my dad had cancer and he was in a clinical trial and um but it, you know I digress but my point is that um I think that as a community we need to be more in tune with where our patients are um on a daily basis and what they're facing and what their families and their loved ones are going through and um you know wh- like you said what are the implications of that with how we allocate our funding and our resources Mhm Okay excellent I'm going to add another question Okay, um, you're, we have another caller. Hi, yes. Um, 
My name is David. I'm, I'm a student at the University of Utah. I just had a, a quick question. Um, I have a friend who has cancer, and I was just wondering how best I can help them get into their desired trial, if there was anything I could do for them in that, in that regard. That's great, Dan. Thanks for listening, and thanks for calling. Um, I, I think that... Um, so, um, I, I'll... You know, rather than answer you as a doctor, I'm going to answer you as a friend of a patient, too. I, one of my best friends has cancer right now, and uh, she's being treated here. Um, she doesn't have myeloma. She has breast cancer, actually, and um, is going through um, pretty aggressive treatment right now. And I think that um, as a friend, the first thing that I would say is be available. You know, I think that um, having seen this from both sides, a lot of people get a lot of support. They get a lot of rally around when the diagnosis comes. And then um, what happens over time is everybody gets back kind of in their routine and everybody has their own obligations and their own um, commitments that they have to keep every day. And so once the dust dies down, um, the friends kind of, they don't go away, but they kind of go back to their lives again. And so I think Number one, I would say just be available, you know, just be, um, you don't have to take flowers and, you know, you don't have to, but but just be available. Just, it could be just call and say hi kind of thing. Just put it on your calendar to be available. I think if you have that kind of relationship with your friend, I don't know what your relationship's like, but um, if you're tight enough to, to talk about how treatments are going and what, um they're feeling, how they're dealing with things, um, you know, then maybe you can take the next step and say, well, you know, why why are you on that treatment? Um, mm-hmm. Do you want me to go to a doctor's visit? And um, did you ask your doctor what your other options are? Did your doctor mention anything about trials? Um, I think those are well, questions, they're hard. I think it depends on the relationship and how tight you are with them, but I think the the best piece of advice I and Jenny you could weigh in too obviously but I think the best piece of advice is just be available just carve it out in your week and be available. Well, if you have a relationship, then you can help with other things. But um, you know, we had a family member who had AML and a very severe form of leukemia, and so we've been through this process multiple times. And it it is helpful when you're in that panic state to have somebody else do a lot of the homework for you. And it's it's very, very helpful for people to get online and research because sometimes when you're taking the drugs and you're in a stressful situation, it's not the time to start researching drug modalities. <laughs> and it it just it's overwhelming, and so you kind of shut it out. But if somebody can do some of that homework for you and say, I found these three things you might want to look at, I think that's really helpful. Okay, we have um, one more question. Okay, go ahead with your question. Hello? Uh-huh. Uh, hi, my name is Kibet Martin, um, and I have some friends with cancer, also a lot of family in the medical industry. Uh, my mom's a nurse, and I just wanted to talk a little bit about some of the issues in the clinical recruitment process. It seems like a lot of patients are having large issues with the complexities in clinical trials. And I know right now a lot of the trends are moving towards innovation and collaboration. Specifically, I know of an organization that wants to change the way clinical trials recruit candidates by giving 
patients' access to da data. And I just wanted to know what your views are, Dr. Benson, on more patient-centered approach to these clinical trials and how these can help the innovation and collaboration process. That's a great question. Thank you for bringing that up. Um, I, I think that um, I, I would go back kind of to the first principle that we mentioned earlier, that um, I, I think the doctor and the patient have to have a partnership. They have to have a very honest relationship and a very interactive relationship. Um, and that takes time to develop. Um, I, I think you don't just trust somebody when you meet them the first time. You really have to develop a relationship with them. You have to know who their spouse is and know what fulfills them in life, what's important to them, and something that takes time. Um, but I think that's the kind of relationship that somebody with myeloma needs with their doctor. Um, and, and so they can have conversations not only about trials but about everything in life, you know. Um, I think when it comes to trials, um, I, I think that the um, the same kind of standards hold, that the more you know, the better. And um, for a patient to be in a trial, um, you know, the, the folks who I take care of here who are on trials, um, we talk about everything. You know, we talk about what's going on in the other treatment arms. We talk about toxicities other patients have had. We've talked about, you know, here's the last six patients that have gone on this. You know, I don't tell them their names and where they live, but we talk in general about how they're doing and if their diseases are similar or different and... Um, you know, personally, I have no problem sharing that with my patients. I think programmatically, if, if you're talking about what can we do as a system to improve things, um, I think these kind of data sharing um, ideas are great. You know, a lot of my patients, um, we so Ohio State, let me back up, Ohio State has a big reputation in experimental therapeutics and in phase one trials. So a lot of patients who come here, come here at, you know, specifically because somebody somewhere else told them that there's nothing left. And so we have a lot of patients who come to be in a phase one trial here. And many of them come, not for themselves, but because they want to help the next person um, or because of some very, um, very incredible altruistic uh, drive um, to make life better for everybody else. Um, and and these people want to know the results of the trial, you know, and, and so we share that at every extent. But what else can you do? Um, you can look at um, the journals and see what's being published. You can go to the, I mean, it's kind of hard to go to a meeting, but you can get the synopses from the um, cancer research meetings and find out right up to date how many people are responding, what kind of toxicities are being seen, what kind of subtypes seem to be benefiting the most. Um, I absolutely encourage that. I think that um, that's part of the um, fulfillment that a patient gets from being in a trial is knowing that you made a difference, that, you know, the next person and the next family that has to deal with this is going to be in a better place because of your decision. Mm, I agree. Well, thank you, Dr. Benson, for joining us today. We've kept you a while, but it was great information, and I'm glad we covered it. Um, we are very excited to hear from you again on the 16th and look forward to listening or learning more about your research in immunotherapies. Um, if you would like to contact Dr. Benson directly, you can 
look at our doctor directory. He's listed in our doctor directory, and at the bottom of his listing, you'll see a place where you can say send a message, and that will send an email directly to him at his facility. So thank you again so much for participating with us, and we look forward to the coming weeks. Uh, it's a great privilege, Jenny. Thank you for inviting me on, and um look forward to our next one. It'll be fun. Okay, thank you so much. Okay, thanks for listening to another episode of Innovation in Myeloma. Join us next week for another inpatient radio interview that helps connect myeloma patients with researchers to drive, to drive better outcomes for us all. <laughs>